1: Hi, this is Dennis Quaid, and I want to tell you about a new show I've produced that I know you're going to love. It's called The Pet Show. And well, it's a show about pets, dogs, cats, snakes, birds, and our relationship with these animals. It's the podcast with a purpose. Listen to The Pet Show on the
2: iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buckle up for an unfiltered dose of comedy.
3: Full disclosure, I've had a lot of sex, but honestly, having sex with me is like buying a Prius. It's much quieter than you'd expect. <laughs>
2: Epics presents unprotected sex. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: this is
2: Lips LA. Hey guys, welcome to the show today. It's Scott Lips, and this is Lips Service. This is actually a very exciting show for me today. One of my childhood uh, idols and favorite bands, grown up, Mister Joe Thomas Elliot from Def Leppard, is stopping in today, or actually calling in, shall we say? Joe Thomas Elliott, or Joe Elliot, better known as, is the singer for one of the biggest rock bands of all time. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees Def Leppard. The band has sold over 100 million records. We're going to touch base on his new band, or shall I say a band that formed some years ago, but they have a new album out, The Down and Outs, which is one of the reasons why he's coming by today or calling in. And I shall say, uh, with Pyromania and Hysteria both certified diamond, Def Leppard are one of only five rock bands with two original studio albums selling over 10 million copies each in the U.S., and you guys should know, it's only The Beatles, Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Van Halen are the other ones. So, both Pyromania and Hysteria are featured in Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. So, super excited to have Joe Elliott here today, calling in, and uh, we're definitely gonna touch base on some of the history of Def Leppard, although they've been around for about 40 years, so that would be about a three hour show if we got into that. But he's got a new album out with the Down and Outs, his side project, that does not take him away, hopefully too long, from the mothership. Um, one of the greatest singers of all time. It's just a, a pleasure to have him on the show today. So coming up in just a moment, Mr. Joe Elliott of Deaf Leopards.
1: You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hello, Scott. How are you?
2: I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Joe? Are you doing all right today?
1: Yes, I am. Thank you very much. Cool. It's really early. It's I say early 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm in California at the moment.
2: Oh, cool. I wasn't sure if I was actually calling into Dublin or somewhere.
1: No, nah, I go on this weekend. I've got to go and do uh, in-person promo for the um, Down and Out album, so I'm legging it out of here at the weekend.
2: Amazing. L.A. is so not then, such a bad place to be, I'm I guess, right? you call, mate. I was going to say, we actually have a lot of mutual friends, so it's great to actually uh, sort of meet you on the phone here. But we uh do? Yes, Marty Fredrickson is a guy I played drums with for many years, who I believe worked with you guys.
1: Ah, right, yeah, God, yeah. We had great fun working with Marty, I've got to say. He was... Um, He's very enthusiastic.
2: He's great. He's a great writer. We, he actually used to do these demos of uh, his own band back in the day that sounded exactly like Def Leppard. So it's it's actually pretty funny that he ended up working with you down the line. Um, but he's an incredible yeah, producer. I mean, he was
1: pretty keen on working with you, in fairness. You know? I mean, we we we've done Mighty's work with um, with Aerosmith, and in fairness, acquired Mighty's work with um, uh, Stillwater or whatever they were called. Oh Fever right. Dog. right,
2: right, right, right. Really cool. What a great song, Fever Dog. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I'm um, excited for you to be here. And, and also, I definitely want to talk about, obviously, we'll touch base on the new album. So it's got to be a great feeling now. And this, this is actually an album of all original material. It's like 11 songs that you wrote, correct?
1: Well, all except for the one cover. Um, we did... We do White Punks on Dope by the Tubes. Um, I'll explain that later on, but yeah. Other than that, everything else on the album I wrote myself, for sure.
2: That's awesome. I want to talk a little bit about the down and outs, and obviously get into the history of your journey with Def Leppard and whatnot. But the down and outs as a band, it has to be exciting because it kind of came about about your you know, sort of your love for Matthe the Hoople and and your friendship, I guess, with uh, you know with Ian and, and whatnot, right? How did the band sort of form? Because it formed about ten years ago.
1: Yeah, well, it was actually formed on my behalf. Um, when, when I got word about six months before the October 2009 Mott the Hoople shows that um, they were reforming, um, obviously I was very excited. The first thing I did was just tell our management, don't book any gigs for Def Leppin in October because I'm going to these gigs. So I was going, hell come hell high water anyway, just as a fan, you know. Um, but then I got a message from Trudy, Ian's wife, who kind of basically types on Ian's behalf. Um, yeah, they want you to come and uh, and get involved. So I'm like, oh, okay, you know. She says, look, everybody knows you've been, you know, flying the flag for them for thirty odd years. So, <laughs> you know, they want to kind of, you know, have you around, sort of thing. I thought, okay, so what do you want me to do? Walk on stage and introduce them or something? She goes, no. She says, um, they want you to open for them on the last of the five shows. You know? Amazing. And I said, well, okay, but obviously Def Leppard are not going to do that. He would take the light away from them. It'd be a bit ridiculous. She goes, no, no. She says uh, Mick Brown, who was the prom- the uh, the promoter of the gigs, also looked after the Cry Boys at the time. And he said, they have kindly offered to be your band. Um, so think of something to play, you know. And Spike was going to step aside and, you know, he, he was just going to watch. Sort of party participating, and so I, I got my, my go-to guy with the band was Paul Gearing, the guitar player. Sure. And we um, we talked about it, and I I said, "All right." Well, he says, "Look, what you, we're there for whatever you want. So you think of whatever you want to do, we'll be there." So um, I sat down and I thought, "What would the teenage me, sat in the front row, want to see the grown-up me doing up there, opening for Mother Hoople?" Right. And I thought. I know what, everything that they did after they split up. So there was a time period after Mott the Hoople split in 74 where they were still kind of at the forefront of Mott fans' eye uh, line, if you like, in the British music press. Ian Hunter had gone solo with Mick Ronson. Um, the band had carried on with a new singer, Nigel Benjamin, and a new guitarist, uh, Ray Mazers, and abbreviated the name to Mott, and they made two albums. And then when the singer quit or got fired, they recruited John Fiddler from an old British kind of blues duo called Head, And they renamed the band British Lions and they put two albums out. So I thought, I'm just going to cherry pick my favorite songs from those, that period, which was 75 to 77 and play them, play the 10 songs in front of, uh, you know, Mott's crowd. I mean, I wasn't even announced on the bill, so when I went out there, there was people like either just milling around not really knowing or they're looking, going, Jesus, that's the guy from Death Left. Could that no. be Joe Elliott on it stage? Wasn't like there was a, <laughs> I was all over the billboard outside the venue which had been announced in the music press, so it really was totally under the radar.
2: Right, definitely. And, and it's also- we were
1: doing the songs, and, and as you... We-
2: Go ahead. No, it's, it's great also drawing attention to sort of the lesser-known Mott the Hoople songs, right? So sort of the British Lion songs. Well, and Mott
1: the Hoople songs. That was it. You see, I couldn't see how you could possibly work me doing Mott the Hoople songs an hour before they did them. <laughs> right. That would have been just right. silly.
2: Yeah, it would have been so strange. So I had to
1: do something that the uber-mott fans... I just had a feeling that of the 6,000 people in the venue, that there would have been a, maybe a third of them Carried on following the splinter, just like people bought McCartney, Harrison, uh, Lennon, and, and even Star albums after the Beatles split. Right,
3: you know? right, right.
1: Um, so, I, you know, I, I basically just took a, a, a chance, just like throwing your money on a roulette wheel, that there'd be an, a, a percentage of people that got this, you know. And I was absolutely bang on because. We picked all these things, like we did uh, Overnight Angels and um, Golden Opportunity from Ian's, much hated by him, Overnight Angels album. I love it. Um, Great record. The first album. We did, I think so too, we did Shouting and Pointing, Storm off that particular album. We did a British Lions track called One More Chance to Run, all this kind of stuff. And we're blaring through them. And as we kind of 10, 20, 30 minutes into the set, people were starting to get on their feet and got you know, really get into this. Definitely. And we went down really well. Um, luckily, I filmed it and we recorded it. So it's, it's archived to to come out on vinyl one day, but it's actually already out on DVD. Um, And that was it, 45 minutes, done. We were literally going our own separate ways after that. We met on the 1st of October, which is the night of the first mock show. We went into a tiny little rehearsal room in London. We'd never met. Um, We shook hands like English men do, uh, started the rehearsal. Two two hours later, we were hugging and in the pub because... (laughs) They'd done six months of the homework. I'd done my six months of the homework, and when we played together, it's like we've been a band for, for years. You know, they really got it down. Um, so we did the set, and we finished, and uh, we kind of went to the foyer bar between, you know, during the interval before Mott came on. And as we were out there buying a pint or whatever, um, we had like a dozen kids come up to us and say, like, dude, I can't believe I heard them songs. I never, I mean, yeah, I'll play them at home, but I never thought I'd ever hear them again on live. Um, one kid pushed me against the wall with actually t- t- tears in his eyes, you know, this happened to Paul as well. You've got to record these songs. And it's just, that's what he actually the penny dropped, you know, I'm like going, yeah, I never even thought of it, it never occurred to me that we'd go in and record them.
2: Because you thought that was just going to be a well, one-time you know, we, thing, you played that show and that would be it, yeah, right? You, a yeah, one-off,
1: a one-off yeah. performance, I had it filmed for my own personal reasons, just so That's I could right. say, this, just this is what we did when, when I supported Mock the Hoopal, yeah. you know, like, yeah. it's for sure to my grandchildren, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so... We watched the mock gig, and then we went by the hotel and and, and had a shindig with them, and I just got talking to the guys individually throughout the rest of the evening. You know, while these songs are still fresh in our DNA, do you want to go in and record them? And to a man, they all said, absolutely, brilliant idea. And luckily, Guy Griffin, who lives in Bedfordshire, uh, one of his closest friends has got a studio like two miles up the road from him. So they all went in there. They had luckily, again, timing is everything. They had some time off from the choir boys. So they went in and they banged out the, you know, all the basic tracks. And with the beauty of uh, the internet, etc. these days, they just, the guy sent everything over to my guy um, over the internet. Or just, he may have posted discs either way. We just, they sent the files over because it was all done on Proton. And uh, we imported it into my studio. And then I started banging out my stuff, which is a really, really tar, you know, um, piano and stuff and and the vocals and voila my regeneration is is finished and now what do we do with it you know so um i was given an opportunity to give it away in uh, in classic rock magazine in the uk which has got a readership of about a hundred thousand and i thought to myself well if you give it away in a magazine that sells that many a hundred thousand people take possession of it maybe Twenty thousand will listen to it, and out of the twenty thousand, maybe half of them will like it. That gives me an audience of ten thousand. You know, right? Right. I was just being very conservative. Sure. We got, uh, we then through that got offered the opportunity to play a festival in the UK called High Voltage. Um, and when we went on stage, I know there's twenty eight thousand people in this field in London. And I noticed the first few thousand down the front was singing every word to Shouting and Pointing and Overnight Angels. Amazing. I was looking around going, fucking hell, they actually <laughs> listened to it. You know? <laughs> we have put it out on, on CD eventually in the UK, came out in America, and lo and behold, we had a top five single on American you know, rock radio with England Rocks and a number one with Overnight Angels. Amazing. So all of a sudden, from this like, the, you know, shall we record them? I've now got a legitimate second band you know, because once this started to take off and it was like now, uh, you know, six, seven months since the gig, it started to slowly seep into my kind of psyche that, wow, this is actually fun. You know, this is great. Yeah. It's like a whole new band. It's a whole new thing. It's extremely different to Def Leppard and a lot of fun. Why not carry on, you know? So, I, we it just became obvious. You know, a year after that, we opened for Paul Rogers around the UK in, in arenas, which went down really well and gave us the opportunity to play some of the Hoople songs, which we didn't do for obvious reasons on that one gig that we'd done. And then so when we went in the studio, we... we um, basically raided the Hoople catalog. So we, you know, we had things like Rock and Roll Queen or The Journey from the early days and then we had things like uh, Driving Sister and, and Kid and Marionette from the latter days as well as going back into Mott again with things like Stiff up The Lip. So, the second album was free of any restrictions of Mock the Hoople or whatever. And again, you know, the album did great for us. On, in, in for what it's worth, and we're not talking Phil Collins' solo stuff here, but, right. you know, it, for what it was, it, you know, he yeah. gave us a 10-day club tour of Britain, six uh, or 700 capacity places that were stuffed. And we just, we'd recorded the live album. It all, it was all going very swimmingly. But of course, we were all aware of the fact that only when it's we can we do this because my mothership is very busy, of course. Um, and the choir boys started to kick off big time. Um, and, and Shane then, Shane has Vixen too.
2: Yeah, I was going to say Shane's from Vixen yeah, is so in the band too.
1: Yeah, on bass by then. So you've got Cher Ross and Vixen. They they do a lot of work. It might be only weekend warriors stuff, but they work a lot. You yeah. know, and, and Phil Martini, the drummer, is in in Toby's new band called Wayward Sons. Cool whose album comes out the same day as a new down and out album. So, you know, trying to get these guys on board to do any more shows has been, since 2014 has been an absolute no-no. So, what we did instead was we've picked uh, we've picked at this album over a period of time and put the album together instead and we'll worry about the live dates down the road. But you know, we were always going to make a third record. We just weren't really sure what kind of album to make. So we'd sat down and talked about doing another covers album, but we've done the thing to death. So let's think of some other songs to do. White Punks on Dope came up literally five years ago. Um, so that was always going to be done no matter what. But as I was sitting around on time off between Leopard Tours and what have you, I was plonking away on my piano and starting to write tunes that weren't really Def Leopard songs. And then it just kind of struck me when I was about the third one in. It's like, my God, I think I've just started writing for the next Down and Outs album. So I told the guys, scrap the idea of covers by other people. Let's write one. Um, and it got to the point where I just kept writing. And they heard it and said, this is fine. You don't need a contribution from us. It's your vision anyway. Let's go with it. And I said, but we're still going to do White Punks on Dope. And they went, yeah, fine, great. <laughs> <laughs> so I just kept chipping away at this thing. And, you know, on time off, whenever everybody's schedules were um, lined up, they, the guy, most of the guys would come over to, to my studio in Dublin and record their bits. So other than the drums, which were recorded in London, and Sher's Bass, which was recorded in Florida – the rest of it was all done in my place. So over, it still has a, a thread of continuity to it, you know?
2: Over about but the course of five years or so, right? Yeah, I was going to say about five years or so. Yeah, is sort it, was of the period.
1: F- it wasn't recorded over a five-year period. I started writing the stuff. I actually had some of the demos re- recorded before the second album came out. Because I can s- distinctly remember when we were re- making the video for, um, well, it was either One of the Boys or, or uh, Rock and Roll Queen. They were both shot in the same venue in Sheffield. I can remember us between, you know, filming, me playing them the demos, and them all, like, going, yeah, this is great, you know, this sounds like it could be a great Dan and Hours thing. So the songs were on the go in 2014, and then I kept writing and writing, like, "Goodnight, Mr. Jones, obviously didn't get written until after Bowie died. Right, right. So. Um, last Man Standing and Boys Don't Cry were only written last year, I think. Because I was still, I knew there was stuff missing, so I was, I was writing to to finish it, basically, you know. But it was great to be able to record and write these songs over a period of time. Because when you get to live with them, um, you can go, I know what's missing, and they can all form you going, I know what solo I need to record on that song. I, I, can I can I take this one and run with it? Like Paul Gearing said that to me about the song Creatures. And he said, like, I have an idea for this one. My basic backing track was exactly that basic. And he came in with all that angular weird guitar lead stuff all the way through. And I went, Jesus, this is just taking me to a totally different place. So they all chimed in with our ideas. But then we'd have to sit around six months before we could actually record them. Because he'd just do rough versions at home on his little Fostex thing. And then he'd have to, you know, we'd have to wait until he was free from touring with or recording with the choir. and he was free from touring with Leopard to say, right, we've got a week. Come over for two or three days and let's blast this out, you know. But um, so that's basically the history of, of where it all started. It was an absolute, just, it was an invitation to be involved in that one mo- night. And he just sp- springboard from there, you know, completely... Uh, naturally and, and organically, there was nothing forced about it, didn't have a label, didn't have anything. I just once i have got it still finished. I just started asking around, does anybody want to put this out, you know?
2: Because growing up, Mott the Hoopa was for sure one of your favorite bands, if not your favorite band, would you say?
1: Oh, yeah, it totally was. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I was, I, it, it, there's a trifecta. You know, a lot of people's trifecta is Bowie, Reed, and and, uh, and, and Iggy. Right,
3: right. Mine
1: was Bowie, Boland and Mott. yeah. So it's really hard to separate them. Um, luckily for me, <clears throat> I don't really have to because, even from a psychological point of view, T Rex were a band, but he was mostly, he was actually Mark Boland. David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars was actually David Bowie, but, you know, I was still very into, you know, Woodman, Steve Trevor, and, and and Ronson, of course. Yeah, of course. And then Mott was actually a band, but they just had this, by the time I'd really got into them. Ian had become the front person. Even though I was into them before then, but I didn't ever see them, so I wouldn't have known. You know, I mean, I was just hearing the fact that, like the Beatles, occasionally they had two people singing. You know, it was sometimes it was Ian, sometimes it was Mick, Mick Ralphs. Um So they were like three separate entities that I could enjoy all at once. They weren't, they weren't kind of competing against each other as three bands would, like you know, say Slade, Sweet. And, and, and another band of that nature. They've all been bands. This was like um, Mark Boland and T-Rex, David Bowie and the Spice from Mars and Mott the Hoople. It was, they were separate entities. So all three were really my favorite artists. So consequently, my favorite band was Mot the Hoople. You know, I, mean, I you've got to understand growing up in Sheffield in the seventies, we had the bbc right radio one had only been around since 67 it was a top 40 station so we never got to hear anything like sabbath or purple or zeppelin right. on a regular basis on the radio we, we but we did get away hear stuff like sweet slade bowie boland mott um lou reed when he had hits <laughs> yeah. rock music um you know that kind of stuff um you know, mixing with Thai Yellow Ribbon and, and other nonsensical songs and all that kind of crap. You know, so we had two hour two hours a week.
2: So the John rock shows the John um, Peel
3: sessions,
1: right? Saturday afternoon, yeah, John Peel was but John Peel played a lot of album track stuff, but he was on kinda late at night and most of us were told by our parents to be in bed by then. Mm. And if I went to bed she on the transistor radio in radio Luxembourg under the bedsheets because they played a much more vibrant playlist. They were a satellite pirate station.
3: Yeah, yeah, right? no.
1: <laughs> And so they were they weren't tied down to formats and they could let they'll be the on f bombs with by <laughs> right. in a song which the BBC would never do. <laughs>
3: right.
1: And they would also play album tracks or they'd go deeper. They'd play the singles that bands put out that you knew the BBC would never play. You know, like maybe Argent who, in fairness, they did have two hits, thanks to the beat, but, you know, that kind of band its a bit more of a an album band that the record company would release a single just to kind of showcase the album rather than trying to get it into the charts. Um, it was where Luxembourg really kind of went for that format a lot more, so it, that's when I heard Mother Opal for the first time. They had this thing called Record of the Week, and their Record of the Week, they played once an hour every hour for seven days. So if you were a fan of the song, or you know, it great, if you hated it, you were in deep shit because you were gonna hear this thing twenty four times a day <laughs> if you had the station on. Right. right. You know. Um, and that's when I first heard their version of Danny Whiton's downtown. And then I heard Midnight Lady um, and then I started getting these compilation albums from Island Records, which were amazing. They were only like two dollars an album. I remember the like
2: I remember the compilation album. records. Those are great
1: yeah, it was like uh, Bumpers, LP, Nice Enough to Eat, uh, all that kind of stuff. And that's when I first heard the original Mixed Up Kid off the Wildlife album. And it was Ian singing. Um, and I just really resonated with his voice, And which is odd because I'm not really keen on Dylan, but he sounds like Dylan. Yeah. But he sounds better than Dylan to me. Right. Yeah, he was definitely. my Dylan, if you like. you know? Definitely. And of course, I'd be telling all all my mates at school. You've really got to get into this band For a start. The name's really weird. The singer's got all his hair and shades on. He looks really cool. And they're like going, yeah, you know. And then Dudes is a big hit, so I was the one in the playground going, nah, 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 nah.
3: nah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you know, it was it was really was you know, I discovered them. I wasn't I wasn't like, hey man, you got to check out this band which I did with a lot of groups I found a lot of awesome artists by people lending me records you know the first montrose album and stuff like that but um, I found mock myself and liked it and then I found them I found them on compilation records and there's the thread I'm going like, oh that's that band album. it's on on uh your Luxembourg and then some of them are there they are again and now they're in the charts and David Bowie wrote the song it's like how fucking cool <laughs> right. is this it doesn't get any better than this for somebody my age 1972 was an incredible time period. You know, it it got all kick-started by T-Rex in 71 and things like Hot Love and Get It On and Jeepster. And then this kind of glam rock thing started to take off in the UK and TV had just gone colour and we just bought a coloured TV. So all of a sudden everything's not black and white and grey anymore. I'm seeing all these vibrant colours off uh, these crazy bands in 1972, like Sweet and Slade and Bowie and T-Rex and Wizard and Roy Wood with his, you know, <laughs> rainbow-colored hair. Yeah. It was insane when you're 12 to see this stuff, you know. And then you see Bowie, you know, introducing us to, to Lou Reed via Transformer and writing this song for Mother the and having hits himself as Ziggy Stardust. It was like just the most brilliant time it's to amazing. be a kid... Discovering a whole new, this was, this was Woodstock, Sea, this is the 70s, and the 70s essentially started in 72.
2: Yeah, now I love the fact that you're always turning people on to music, especially this generation, which they might not have discovered. And Leopard has always done amazing covers, by the way. So some of my obviously stay with me, and, and now you have the Tubes cover on this new record. But do you have a favorite cover that you've done over the years, whether it be Bad Finger or whoever it may be? Is there a sort of one that sticks with you? Like, you know, I love the fact that we did this track, and it's my favorite all-time cover. Maybe it's Personal Jesus, well, the, I don't know. Well,
1: the thing is... If we've covered it, we've covered it because either I or we have really dug the song. And I'm not the kind of guy that's got one favorite song. So if we've covered it, it's never been reluctant or with a gun at our heads from an A&R man. Right. You know, um, when we did Personal Jesus, you know, we were kicking around what song to do because part of the Spotify session should do one of your own and, and a cover. And we were like, yeah, yeah. And then Vivian just went, what about Personal Jesus? And we all just looked at each other with big wide eyes and went, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know, so at this moment, I we'd really being the freshest, I, I really love that. For my own personal, you know, like, um, what's the word? Internal reasons, I suppose. Death Leopard's Driving Saturday off the Year album, only because I, I have a very good friend that used to sing backing vocals for Bowie. And she sent it to him, and I saw his email about how brilliant he thought it was. Amazing. Um, which is very, very nice. Yeah, so. um, But, you know, the Tubes thing's pretty hard to beat, because uh, that song, uh, you know, although the Tubes are uh, renowned to be a parody act, you know, which I don't really think they are, um, they've made some amazing records over the years. But when I first heard White, white Punks on Dope, it literally was like it had been written to bridge the gap between glam rock and punk rock. Yeah, sure. Which is totally my bag.
3: Definitely.
2: I'm
1: right there, all those <laughs> yeah. cool chords, like uh, the chord sequences is the same as the one in Cracked Actor, but the song could have been the Sex Pistols other than it's a little too melodic. Yeah. You know, it's got everything going for it, you know. It's, it's just everything. Um, the arrangement, it's, it's epic in its, in its arrangement, but at the same time it's not 20 minutes long. Um, so that's the, only, that's the only that's the only cover
2: on this record. It's funny because you always all the other records that you've done with this project in particular were covers. So now this is your first yeah. full length of all original music besides you know the the Tubes cover.
1: If, if there's a, a three way description of why it's on the album, a as I said, we decided five years ago we were going to do it and we never dropped the idea. Two, putting it last on the record and showing that we can still do great versions of other people's songs. We've already established by now that the third album, this band is is now can genuinely stand its, you know, on its own two feet as a, as a as an entity because up until Y-Punks and Dope coming in, everything has been self-written.
2: That's great. What's you know
1: so- what I mean? So it's not like we're relying on other people's songs like, say, Frank Sinatra or Elvis did. Definitely. This is, I've written these songs for this band. And now as an encore, Here's another cover, but it's, for a change, it's not mock. Which, again, it, it launches it into a different orbit, just even psychologically. Well, then- you know? So that would be the three the three reasons why I think he works so well. His placement on the record is very important. I made a big deal of this album of trying to get it to thread. It's not concept, but I wanted to kind of pick Townsend's brains as the way that he presented Tommy and Quadrophenia, there's these massively important albums that have got these themes that reoccur all the time. You know, some of the songs on Tommy or on Quadrophenia is the same song with different lyrics to a point.
2: <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, no question. Um,
1: I didn't do that, but I did. I did reprise Music Box. Uh, you know, it's it's the vaudeville kind of. Fairground version, and then there's the acoustic version that comes out of Let It Shine. And and we also reprised uh, the whistling bit out of Creatures for the end part of the album, which is just an in-joke that we have done on every album so far. We've just taken part of another song, giving it a really stupid name, and had it as a, just a write-out kind of buy, if you like, you know. So I, I made a big point of doing that when we when we put this record together. But the whole thing with with the... With, you know, why punk's on dope is it really is just like well it's just there for fun you know this is we're not trying to break barriers we're what we're trying to do is entertain people and anybody this of my age which is going to be multiple people buying this sort of maybe you know being the age that i am when they heard the tubes or i've heard them since if a 16 year old picks up on it then great yeah but there's going to be older folk going oh, god this is such a great idea <laughs> so you know we're we're not exactly preaching to the converted, but I know what my audience is, and I think they'll get it, and that's the whole point. But essentially, we did it for us. You know, we, we wanted to do it. It was something that gave us a thrill. Well, the, the, all you can ever do when you, whether you're writing songs or you're covering songs is you hope that you bring people along for the ride no
2: okay. question the record's great That there's definitely three tracks out already this is how we roll um, the full length comes out on October 11th which I'm really excited for there's a heavy Elton John vibe to me on this record that I think you're playing are you playing the piano on most of it?
1: I play some of it okay yeah it's, um, it's great I've played the, play the piano on all the demos but Keith we is such a great player and of course, I let him, you know, replace all my piano parts to, to, for the most part. There was occasionally little bits in songs where my feel for the part was more suited to the song. I wouldn't say better, but just more suited from a playing point of view. The naivety of my very um, rudimentary playing sometimes works which is why I gave myself the credit of some piano because Bowie did that on, on Honky Dory. Right, and, right. You know, because the other pianist just happened to be Rick Wakeman. You know I mean? <laughs> right,
3: right.
1: Um, it was nice that he, distinct, that he could distinguish the, the bits that might not have been so clever. It's like, that's probably Bowie played. <laughs> yeah. I kind of wanted to, didn't want to take any shine away from Keith. But yeah, like the intro of Last Man Standing is me, but when the, the whole thing kicks in, it goes to Keith. So we just did clever edits between takes, that's all. Yeah. Um, but I wrote everything except "This Is How We Roll" and "Boys Don't Cry" on the piano. Wow, amazing! I wrote all of them on the piano, which gives it its distinction between Def Leppard and the Down and Out anyway. Um, yeah, I wonder... and of course that lends towards the Elton John thing because I'm a huge fan of Elton John. I mean, you know, Def Leppard have covered "Love Lies Bleeding," "Funeral for a Friend," you yeah. know, for "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road," um, which we did uh, nine years ago. Now think it is, you know, and. So Elton's been part of my musical journey since I was probably uh, your song, what, in 1972? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, luckily you go, ooh, wow, he's got three albums out before this one. <laughs> right. as, as a lot of bad artists. When I discovered Bowie, he was, that was his fourth album. Definitely. You know, I discovered most artists back in the 70s, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band, they were on their fourth album when I found them. So you ultimately had an instant record collection if you could afford to buy them, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um well, so yeah, there's, 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 I think that the you know by def, by default, the Elton John thing leads us towards. There's one song that I think's got a real Leon Russell feel to it, and that's basically because Elton was in fact you know was 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 himself you know influenced by Leon Russell. So some Leon Russell leads into Elton John, so it sounds a bit like both of them when I do it, you know. Um, and want- yeah, I'd, I'd say that's the biggest. From a piano point of view, Elton John is probably the the closest obvious comparison. You know, there's a a tiny little bit of Queen sounding stuff on the guitars. There's a bit of Sparks on Creatures, I think, on the piano. Mm. Um, And obviously Bowie. You know, there's a lot of kind of Bowie-ish sounding stuff on there as well. No pressure. Um, Because they use the piano as well, you know. And, you know, so they always kind of rock bands with piano, which is Mott, Queen... Elton, um, you know, uh, they, they were going to shine that, and, and Bowie, they were going to shine through a tiny bit because uh, that's basically where I was nicking it all from. You know, there's nothing this side of 1975 on that record at all. And by the way, I ha- maybe the production itself.
2: I have to ask because I had Roger Taylor's uh, daughter uh, that I met up with the other day and we were talking about the movie. Were you a fan of the Queen movie? What were your thoughts on it, just out of the blue? The Queen film. Yeah, what'd you think of it? I mean, you, did, obviously there were a big inspirations oh, you I growing loved up. Oh, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, and I know you're close with Brian no, too. No, I've
1: seen it. I've seen it like four times mm. now because I watched it. We went to the cinema to see it, and I've seen it like three times on an airplane since. You know, it's um, it's brilliant. I, I just think I think I think uh, the, the guy that played um, Fred, um,
2: R- Rami Malek, yeah, was
1: yeah, he was just insane. Yeah, uh, he's great. I mean. Yeah, he, he deserves every accolade that he got because to put, he basically changed his entire personality to do that more so than he'd ever have to do for Mister Robot. Definitely, you know? definitely. Um, uh, amazing. I thought it was when the guy that played Brian, I fact, when Brian inducted us into the Hall uh, of Fame, the movie had already been out for a while, and we were talking to him, you know, and saying, "Jesus, Brian, the guy that plays you, it sounds like they've actually." overdubbed your voice. <laughs>
3: he said, yeah,
1: he says, even my daughter thought it was me. You know, it's
3: like, <laughs> you know, it was
1: insane that it was like, he really had it down, you know. No, I, I think it was great. Yes, it's got inaccuracies from a timeline point of view, but who cares? It's not a documentary. No. It's a movie.
2: But also they signed they off on of it, right? His, the, the band signed off on it. License. Yeah, and, I was going to say the band signed off yeah, on, on it. So, there's Yeah, too
1: many, there's too many armchair critics that <laughs> right. go, oh, the, they're playing a song that they didn't even write for another 18 months yeah the film's two hours long you've got to come in 12 years <laughs> right. give them a break yeah. you know it's like it really doesn't matter Definitely. you know i've said this many times you could watch like that tom hanks apollo thing and and you know all the stuff that they through trying to get back down off the moon and all this kind of stuff and we'd watch the film and go whoa the tension wow they nearly died and then you sit next to Buzz Aldrin and go, I can show you 400 things that are wrong about that. <laughs>
3: right.
1: <laughs> and you and I go, yeah, but who gives a shit?
2: Yeah, it's not about you know, that. It's yeah. like...
1: We, it doesn't matter. No, not They're about not making that. a movie to impress three astronauts. You <laughs> right. know what I mean. So, but I also think it's, it's opening. It. with the Queen one, you know. I haven't seen. I, I haven't seen the open one yet. I'm looking forward to seeing that. But, it, it was good. I it, just haven't had the time. We've been just busy.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, you've definitely been busy doing quite a lot. Um, I want to talk about one of the tracks on the record, which I love, "Another Man's War." What was sort of the inspiration for that song? I know there's a bit of sort of a, the British black humor, right? You sort of uh, a take on fighting another man's battle that. Not really yours, but um, what was sort of the sort of the idea behind the concept of that song?
1: Well, the concept of the song was that was the first thing that I wrote that was the very first song that I wrote for this project, which is one of the reasons I kind of wanted to be track one side once is from a personal standpoint. this is where it all began as the next chapter of the down and out. Um, you could argue that that's irrelevant, but from an internal point of view, it's not really because it just it shows you the intent that I had. That It's like, I want this to rock, but at the same time, it's not going to rock like Def Leppard does. That's in fact, right. one of the reasons I was so happy that the album title and song title is this is how we roll, is because Def Leppard does indeed rock and in they're down and out roll. So we've got both aspects of rock and roll <laughs> covered,
3: yeah.
1: you know. But um, Another Man's War musically was the first thing that I wrote. And I, that, that's going back to maybe 2012. I mean, it's been around for a while. I just couldn't do anything with it because, you know, I wasn't going to go on the second album. But it was one of the demos that I played to the guys, and they went, this is great. The Musically, the inspiration was kind of England Rocks, really, the, the Ian Hunter's oh, right. sure. first album. Sure. It's got that kind of Jerry Lee Lewis 16s on the piano with stabbing guitar parts
3: Right, right. Yeah, no over possible. the
1: top, as does... Another man's war, but musically, once I've explained that to him, somebody can play the two back to back and go, "I see what you're saying, but it doesn't sound anything like it." Well, he doesn't. That's why it's inspiration, not not rip off, you know. Yeah. Um, so once I've got the arrangement down, knowing full well the vocals were going to fit, because it's not really rocky Science, but with this kind of rock and roll, everything works in fours and eights. So you write you write it with la da melodies in mind, and then you change the la das out for words. That's what most artists do. Um, when it came to writing the lyrics, yes, Another Man's War, it is about that thing where you like, you know, whether it be um, metaphorically speaking or, or realistically speaking, a lot of the things that we are ordered to, you know, or things that we do that can make a difference to the, uh, negatively or positively, we're actually told to do. You know, the, the reason I use the word war was it gets to the point to the that like in a, in a militaristic point of view. If you're a soldier, you just do what you're told. Sure, you know. Sure. Um And I wanted to kind of juggle that with a real dark humour um, of like, yeah, but you know, I'm not really. It's me observing somebody doing that and saying, well, instead of just blatantly going out there and fighting another man's war, why don't you? see how it goes if you throw your own opinion into whatever it is that you're doing. So when it comes to lines like, you know, so you trap behind enemy lines, so take a chance and dance through the landmines. It was a case of like, you know, who would ever do that? But I see this mad character that could have been like Jack Nicholson or something actually doing that in one of these Vietnam movies where you'd have the guy, he's going stir crazy for being down there He's on too much PCP or whatever they were taking to keep him supposedly calm or at least angry enough to kill. Um, And then one of them just, like, losing his lunch and just watching the rest of the platoon just laughing their head off at this guy as he's doing this and hoping that he gets through without getting blown up. Now, that's just one aspect of how you could read the lyric, but I've always liked to keep them ambiguous. So it could be just a metaphor for the way that you were dealing with a, a, a relationship that's going wrong.
2: Definitely, definitely.
1: Well, you I d- know, I mean, the landmines don't actually have to be physically landmines. Landmines could be just, you know, um, obstacles in the in your way between getting from A to B, you know. So it, it covers a lot of angles in that respect.
2: Definitely. And most of the record you did in Dublin, right, at your studio there, Joe's Garage?
1: Yeah, everything that... that- all the top line stuff, everything. The drums were recorded in London, and the rhythm, the bass was recorded in um, in Florida. So we had the rhythm tracks. I pieced them together in the studio. But that was easy. I mean, the truth is, you know, people can that don't experience studio work very often. Can maybe think that it, there's a disjoint if you don't aren't in the same room as the person. It's absolutely not true. Once we have the drums done and we sent the drums to Shazza in Florida, what she gets is the opportunity to play the bass to exactly the same performance Definitely. time after time. So she really gets locked in with Phil's drums because he's not going to be doing it differently each time. So once she listens to it a few times and plays along and then they hit the record button, she's so familiar with the way it is that she locks in even tighter. So you actually get a better performance doing it this way. I mean, Leopard have done this all our careers, so for me, it's nothing new, you know, so it's the logical thing to do. And when the guys came over to Dublin, I, you know, three or four visits, I had all three of them, which is Paul, Griff, and Keith, um, all in the room at the same time, with me and Ronan sat there, like, you know, directing how it's gonna go, and just having them play them, like, over and over again. So they just keep playing them, and we'd, t- we'd t- record every take so that we could then piece together the ultimate performance, you know. And then once we got all the rhythm tracks banged in the shape, um, Keith came down one more time to tidy up some piano stuff. Um, Keith, uh, Paul and came back again to do all the backing vocals that needed doing. Sure did hers in, uh, in Florida and sent them over. Um, and then Paul came over for a couple of days to bang out solos, you know, and then the, when they weren't there, me and Ronan were in there editing, doing my vocals, doing my piano again, or, you know, doing my guitars, playing some acoustic stuff, just building it up. You know, while the guys weren't around, we built the song Music Box, which started off as an acoustic, which I'd written, believe it or not, this is this this is great. I wrote the the acoustic thing, which is the kind of the griff's lament as it is called coming out of um, coming out of Let It Shine. I wrote that at the Spoon Factory in Sheffield in 1978
2: or 79. Wow. Amazing. Incredible.
1: It's like, as a, as a kind of a finger exercise. <laughs> and it's just one of them things that just stuck with me. And I I would just, you know, you had to be there, cabin fever, whatever. I was playing it on the acoustic and, uh, Ronan just kept saying that he just, he'd start whistling it while he's plugging wires in. the so And going, what the hell is that? <laughs> I go, it's this thing that I wrote, you know, 20 years, 40 years ago. <laughs> right. And, um, and then I just looked at him and said, we should put it on the record. We should have it as, a, as one of those little things that Rod Stewart used to do on early records, or the whole link, a piece of Link music. Yep. Just put it on for a laugh, because it's that old. It gets it out of my head, and it turns into something useful, you know. Definitely. So we recorded the acoustic, just to have that 10, 15 seconds worth of it. And then I said to Ronan, I said, um, we should put a recorder on this, because it sounds like he needs like the melody thing bringing out over the top. So I got my old school recorder out, which for some reason I'd kept all these years, 50-odd years. <laughs> and, and I played the recorder. And then once we got that down, we just kept like picking at it going, we need a fairground organ on this. So I said, we need to sound vaudeville. And once we got the fairground organ, then we needed that bass drum thing that you get with that kind of music. Mm. And... And then he, he just started getting crazier and crazier. And he's like, I think we've just made the intro tape for when we play live, you know. Uh, <laughs> this is just, and again, it, it gives it and it gives that band an identity. This is something that I doubt very much something like Def Leppard would ever do. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, this is definitely me, not in the cooperative that Def Leppard is, where you've got to run everything past each other. I just did it, and then I played the finished thing to the rest of the band and said, this is going to restart a side two on vinyl. Or the middle part of the album and they all just kind of went, cool, you know. Right. <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> and when we were finally adding all the harp, we put a harp on it, we put all sorts of mad sounds on it. I said to Ronan, I said, I know how this needs to sound and he is the best interpreter of my ridiculous suggestions. I said, You imagine getting out of bed in the morning. You go to your bedroom window and open the curtains and as you look down at your garden there's a clown looking up at you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he said to me he said, I know exactly what you mean. And hence we got it sounding a bit kind of like Not you don't. know you might hear this in Stephen King's It or <laughs> right. something like that. It's just it's it's a little it's a little kind of disturbing, but at the same time it's totally classic vaudeville. Yeah. You know, it sounds like it could have been the set, uh, it could have been an old music box that you'd hear in a hall of mirrors, and that's what I was trying to get across is that kind of like comical horror, if you like, which is a great intro into the song Boys Don't Cry.
2: Yeah, no question. No.
1: It ends in D, which, and that song starts in D, so the backward guitar chord fade thing sets you up with it again, within then, like, little, you know, very well planned out pieces of drama within an album that, that makes an album sound a little
2: larger than life so so so, how does the recording process Joe, sort of differ obviously the down and out this record took four or five years you work with ronan who's worked with leopard before and you guys are sort of doing you had your respective bands so you were on tour kind of getting it together whenever you could but when depth leopard goes in the studio how is the writing process and the recording process different than say this record was on or is it the same for you
1: Similar but different. It all depends on on which particular projects. But uh, with the down and out thing, it was just me. When I played the original demos to the to the down and out guys, they were like going, "Dude, this is awesome. I love it. Uh, there's no reason why we can't just keep this going." I was also very aware of the fact that if they came in with songs that sounded a bit down and Out-y, they were also going to sound a bit quite boysish.
3: Yeah, of
2: course.
1: Which means that they could have had their own internal issues with. Well, you can't give that to him because we need it. Which, you know?
2: which means it would have sounded so like to, the small to take faces. Take that
1: equation out. <laughs> and I, I, wasn't being, I wasn't being like bullying-ish or anything like that. But I said, then take you out of this equation. Let me write the songs and we'll play them. And they went, that's that's going to be a way better option. Yeah. So I, it was my decision not to – I didn't want to upset their camp. So he wanted me to try to get all the publishing – Trust me, in this day and age, you don't make anything on publishing. <laughs> it was more a case of like, it's just logical that keep them out of, the, out of, the, out of trouble. Definitely. Um, I will write this myself. When it comes to Def Leopard, these days, we write a lot of songs individually, just the way I did for this, but I would tailor songs to fit, you know. Um, we don't try to paint ourselves into a corner by thinking that we'll have a certain format, but there's a logical thing about, but we're never likely to do Egyptian reggae Mm. or something like that. So, you know, you write certain songs that you're not going to work. Occasionally, we'll all come in with a finished song, and occasionally we'll all sign off on it going, that's great, we'll just record it. Sometimes Phil will come in with a finished backing track and go, I've got no idea what to do on the top. I say, give it to me, I'll play with it. So we end up with a Colin Elliott composition. Well, also, I guess... The same thing with me and Sav, he'll have a song half-finished. I will finish it off. I will have a song half-finished. Sav or Phil will finish it off. And when I say by that, we'll sometimes sit in the room and go, I've got a piece that will work great with that. And um, sometimes they'll take it away and come back with a demo of them glued together. Sometimes we'll just literally do it in the room. So it's it's never the same, which is great because it keeps it varied.
2: And also working with Mutt back in the day, obviously he had his own way of working, right? It was very... I guess, I don't know if there yeah, was a... Yeah, well,
1: was a great referee, yeah. you know. I mean, not only was an amazing engineer and producer. Mm. He was a good referee, you know. And the first thing he ever said to us was, like, don't get too precious with your ideas because we're going to tear them to pieces. And, you know, in certain songs that we've done that we thought were great, he'd go, yeah, it's okay. He says, if it doesn't have a chorus yet, and we're like, well, are you kidding me? He says, no, that chorus is a good bridge. So dump the bridge, shift that back, we need a new piece, and slow the whole thing down and change those words because the words suck.
3: Yeah. (laughs) That's what Mutt would do. Um,
1: But we all do that ourselves now, but I've never said to any of the guys those lyrics suck. I might say it by my own. I'd just say, you know, we might want to rewrite this because there's just ways of saying it that are a little more pleasant. But. you know, we're always aware of the fact that song is king, and we don't get offended if one of us to the says, I don't think it's up to scratch. Right, no, no, Okay, well, what, you know, but that bit is, don't get me wrong, that bit's great. Okay, <laughs> then who's got something to replace the bit that's not so good? You know, and then we'll work on it, and sometimes that will overspill. Sometimes an album gets finished and that song doesn't get finished, but then it gets finished a year later because you don't always come up with that wonderful bit in the first 18 seconds. Sometimes it takes 18 months. A great example is Photograph. Photograph was started off as an unfinished demo for High and Dry.
2: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I mean, it
1: sounds absolutely nothing like it did, but the essential part of it was born out of this thing that we were doing in 81, but it never got finished. We dug it up in 82, and then we changed it, but it was, without digging it up, we wouldn't have got to where Photograph is now. So... A lot of songs spill over. I mean, I've I've read so many stories now. Chris Kimsey went down into the basement of Atlantic Records and pulled out all these old half-finished Rolling Stones songs and turned it into Tattoo, which for me is one of the best albums I've ever made. Yeah, amazing records. And they were literally... Most of those songs are six, seven, eight years old.
2: Definitely. No question. No question. You know, in
1: 81. They were like leftovers from early 70s, mid-70s, and they turned them into great songs.
2: Yeah, no question. Because
1: they got chance to live with an unfinished idea and not trying to fix it straight away. You can't necessarily do everything nine to five. Sometimes you have to let it go for a month, a week, a year, or whatever.
2: Um, so, Joe, I was just going to say, you just got done with the Vegas residency um, and uh, obviously had that go. Obviously, yep. you did the whole stereo record. Any songs on there that you of so when you go back and play the full record that you're like, you know, I would have done this differently or that differently or...
1: We didn't do the whole hysteria album. We did that in 2013.
2: Ah, okay, okay. Well, I know you just did the we biggest did residency, right?
1: 2013. Okay. We did, um, we did residency, yeah. But we, we did last year from October till December. We did hysteria, right? Uh, uh, in full, plus a bunch of other stuff afterwards, and we did it at download in UK this summer. But for the rest of the tour, it's just been a kind of a, a career oversight, if you like. But with Vegas. Um, we, we, we brought back songs that we haven't played in 25 years. Some songs we've never played with Vivian. Some songs that we've never played on stage ever. Wow. So it was, and we never played the same set twice in the, in the 12 shows that we did. We always changed at least two or three out per night uh, out of the pool that we had. And only on the last two nights we actually played everything because we were filming them. So we wanted to record every song we'd done. So we played a 24 or a 25 song set, two nights in a row, um, playing for like almost oh, two and a half hours.
2: Amazing. Are there pla- it was
1: insane.
2: Amazing, amazing. Well, I saw the show not long ago with Journey and it was an incredible show. So one of the better shows I've seen in my life. So it was really, really well, great. Well, it
1: was an hour longer than that in Vegas. Amazing. We had a kind of a, it was a 3 Tina. we did a 40 minute, bits out the gate type set. Then we sat down for 20-25 minutes and did some acoustics, you know, including "We Belong" off the last album, where everybody sings lead vocal. All right. We did a song called "Let Me Be the One" that we'd never done live ever. You know, we brought back "Have You Ever," which is we haven't played since '93. And then after that, we nursed ourselves back into the electric by doing "Now" off the X album, and then blasted into what we like to call the home straight. You know, um, it was amazing. I mean, opening the set every night with "Die Hard the Hunter," you know, was just incredible it was just a brilliant production the whole thing was magic they want us back we want to go back it was a great experience and from a personal point of view 27 nights in the same bed giddy up
2: amazing so the new record's out october 11th. definitely go check it out go pick it up and uh excited to have you on the show this is how we roll um and uh anything else to talk about is there going to be tour dates with uh down and outs coming up
1: uh we well i've got to Try to pencil in the dates when they're available to see if I can get them to fit between everybody's um, motherships. Right.
3: You know,
2: right. If you like.
1: But uh, we're hoping so, yeah. I'm not sure yet when. I've no idea. But we'll fingers crossed that we can. I'm more interested in getting the album out right
2: now. Right, for sure. Well everyone go pick up the new record. Joe, it's been a pleasure. I definitely hope to meet you one day coming up in person and uh go pick up the Absolutely. new album. Awesome. My pleasure too. Thank you, my man. Thanks I hope to speak to you soon. Appreciate I appreciate it. it. Thanks again. Bye okay. Right, buddy. Hey, guys. So there you have it. Mr. Joe Elliott, Def Leppard, talking about the new record, Down and Out. Um, we didn't get a chance to cover the entire retrospective of Def Leppard, but the truth is that would have taken about three hours. And the man's busy. He's got a lot going on. So the show was recorded at WeWork, as you know, which we always record the show from. And it's brought to you by the fine folks at Nothing New. And if you guys don't know, Nothing New is one of the only fully sustainable Amazing new sneakers that are made from fully recycled plastics. It is my favorite sneaker. I wear them all the time. Um, many magazines call them the coolest white sneakers in the world. So go check it out at Nothing New. Go check out the Instagram. My favorite overall sneakers. You guys have heard me speak about them tons of times. So go out, buy a pair, let me know what you think. And check out Def Leppard anywhere in the world. One of the greatest bands ever. And obviously go check out the new Down and Outs record. I believe it's their third or fourth record. And... Um, This is how we roll, Mr. Joe Elliott. Hi,
0: this is Dennis Quaid, and I
1: want to tell you about a new show I've produced that I know you're going to love. It's called The Pet Show. And, well, it's a show about pets, dogs, cats, snakes, birds, and our relationship with these animals. It's the podcast with a purpose.
2: Listen to The Pet Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.